did Uncle Scar get his name? Oh, like in The Lion King? Yeah. Is his like given name Scar? No, I think it's once he got the scar. Well, that's that's what I'm asking. Because yeah. unless he was born, he was scarred during birth. And then they're like, oh, we'll name him Scar because he has the scar. I don't think so. Is his real name like Robert? Yeah. Uncle Robert? Uncle Robert. Then it seems kind of uh, disrespectful for little Simba to be calling him Scar. True. Or does everyone just call him that? I he think thinks it's cool. Everyone just calls him that because he chose like the evil life. So he's like, I gotta have like a cool evil name. I feel like he was thrust into the evil life if everyone's already calling him Scar. He's like, I got this Scar saving a busload of nuns. And now all <laughs> you call me Scar? Yeah, I have no choice but to get be bad. I also think it could be like a he's like, Oh yeah, I wanna be Scar because like chicks dig scars. They don't. No. From my understanding, you you tell me. But I mean, like, that's like the... Because he's a tough guy. The commonly said thing. Yeah. Mm. Is that, like, girls really like scars. I think that's just something you tell people with the scar to make them feel better about being, you know, disfigured. And they're going to have the stigma. And then they're going to be just called, hey, scar. Scar. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no wonder he's so angry. And even then, his plan was like, oh, I want to feed everyone equally. That's not the worst. But he did kill his brother. So there you go. True. Oh, spoiler alerts from The Lion King. <laughs> what? <laughs> but we're not talking about The Lion King. We are going to be talking all about the 1967 classic film, In the Heat of the Night. So welcome everyone to another episode of I Love This, You Should Too. My name is Indy Uncle Scar Randella. <laughs> Although I don't really have any scars. No. I don't scar. I don't scar and I don't bruise brag but it's bad because <laughs> what i do get if you don't have those things yeah you do get blood clots true yes. and i'm going for a surgical consult next week and i also we are a blood clot household wow. it's bad news and that <laughs> is my lovely co-host samantha blood clot randawa <laughs> blood clot lungs <laughs> blood clot is like a, it can be used as a like almost a swear true yeah we should start using that. Pulmonary embolism sounds cooler, though. What the pulmonary <laughs> embolism? I'm not going to try a Jamaican accent, especially with that <laughs> word. Um, but, but we're going to talk about <laughs> a movie that has no blood clots. <laughs> I, I didn't think we would spend so much time on blood clots. Uh, but anyways, this was my pick for Black History Month, and I think it's going to be pretty clear why I chose this movie. But it was my pick, something I had seen before and really liked. But this, Samantha, this is your first watch. What are your first impressions on In the Heat of the Night? I liked it. <laughs> Give me a little more. I liked it. It was not what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but um and I thought it had too much gum chewing mm-hmm. and too much racism. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> gum chewing we can get to later, but too much racism. Could you give me another? Like too many racist people. And I understand that this is like a depiction of what the South. They're in the South, right? Yes. Yes. I figured because there's like Mississippi. Cotton plantation. Um. I understand that this is like a snapshot um, and I understand that this is like a movie I think that you're supposed to feel uncomfortable about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that they did a good job with that. 
So your it criticism was, is about ra- that racism existed. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, but I uh, really kind of enjoyed the messaging, I guess. I would have expected there to be more racism in this movie. Mm. I think if there is a black cop in Mississippi, small town Mississippi, mm-hmm. in 67, I think there's going to be more N-words dropped than there was in this movie. Totally. And that was hard, I guess, because we come from a time where you don't say the N-word. Um, and it's like, there's a few words in the English language that like, I wince when they say it. What are the other ones? Please say them now. (laughs) No, I don't want to say them. List them all, starting with the one you were just (laughs) referring to. No, I'm not saying them out loud. I I have a different, a little bit of a different um, background. I've been... Like I grew up being called of that because people don't know. Like, right? You're you're one of the other. You're not white. So you're you one must of the darkies. Be, yeah. So I remember, like, I had to ask my sister when I was six what it meant because that was the first time I was called that. Oh my god! In a, in a soccer game when wow. I was six years old, and then also like growing up, so many of my friends used that word. Um, oh, in the sense that they were black and would call each other okay. that, and yeah, then yeah, would yeah. call me that, and I'd be like, "I'm not calling you that back because I feel like that's not it's cool, not my place." <laughs> but yeah, so it was. Um, I of course wince when I hear it used uh, wrong. I, yeah, I guess yeah, is there like, a right it, way? Uh, I mean, like as an epithet. Yeah, of course. But uh, the existence of it is something that I'm. I don't want to say more comfortable with, but I have more experience. And then I also watch a lot of older movies. Yes. And I also watch a lot more movies that deal explicitly with race relations. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to come up a lot more. So I think I exist in a world or the media that I consume and that kind of thing. There's not a lot of use of that word. Right. Except for maybe in like popular music. I think hearing words like the N-word are still, it's still shocking to me because I've As it should. grew up knowing we just don't say that word that's not a word that we use and so that's was a hard thing for me to hear as much as it was in this movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) one thing i found really interesting and this is like my kind of overall um thought about the movie was it's really interesting to see a time in the u.s where like slavery is over um and it's like peak clan time i assume well, this is past peak clan. But I mean, sure. like, it's still there. It exists. It's Yeah, it's a little more under the radar, but it's still there. I've seen a KKK rally in my life. So. Yes, yeah, like, it's not gone for sure. Idaho, looking at you, you think Idaho is fucked up. You wouldn't think it is because it's like, oh, it's like, you know, northwest. We're not. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's fucked up well, over potatoes. there. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting to see a time where in a more metropolitan place like Philadelphia, where um, Mr. Tibbs is from, that he is like a renowned homicide detective. And he's got this career where he makes good money and he's like respected in his field. And then to go somewhere that he can travel to by train, like it's not like he's going to a completely different country, to see how differently he's handled by the people there. And I just think that's a really interesting juxtaposition and one that is not mentioned in current media as much as I think it still exists. Yeah, definitely. Because even where we are, I'm mm-hmm. a 
somewhat respected person. <laughs> you uh, are. <laughs> but I drive two hours out of town and they're dropping that and where I've been told to go back where I come. Although I get told that in the city as well. But you got told that in the parking lot of the hospital you the were parking born lot in. in the hospital where i was born i was told to go back where i came from um <laughs> but it, small towns here yeah are scary to me and we go through them and you're like oh let's stop here and i'm sometimes like oh i don't know about this yeah it's, it's a little different well let's get into a little bit of context for this movie yeah. because i feel like this movie is one we're going to break down on a semiotics level a little less it's not really about symbolism and hidden meanings right. i feel like this movie is telling you what it thinks it's putting it right there on the surface we'll probably talk less about the formal aspects of this than some of the other movies i choose because it's mostly going to be about the thematic elements and this movie's place in history because i chose this not just because i do think it is a very good movie still but its place in history overshadows the what is actually on the screen in a lot of ways. So this comes out in 1967. And for the Americans, the Vietnam War is going on. Martin Luther King Jr. is still alive. Malcolm X had been assassinated two years prior. And interracial marriage had been deemed constitutional just that year. That this came out. Yes. Wow. Okay. So those things we like to think of as a lot of us like to think of that it's like the far past, right. but it's not that far. It's not that far. And there were so many movies about the Vietnam War that were being made when the war was still going on and in the like the short time right after. Mm -hmm. But with the civil rights movement, there are very few movies that were made contemporaneously that are being made during the civil rights movement right we didn't get a lot of those movies until like 30 40 50 years later is when we start seeing that appear in cinema a lot more and this is one of those few examples where it is addressing things at the time right and we can't really talk about the context of this movie's place in history without Sidney poitier's place in history as well so in 1967, he had done three groundbreaking movies that all came out the same year, uh, To Sir With Love, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner are especially successful in uh, critical response and as far as the Oscars go, because those two movies got so many nominations, everyone except for him. It's one of those instances. So he did win an Oscar. He was the first black man to win uh, Best Actor, and that was in 1964 for uh, Lilies in the Field. But also um, A Raisin in the Sun, I think, is some of his best work. The Defiant Ones. He had been making big movies since the late 50s, and he was working as early as um, like 49, 50. And he has a really interesting biography that I'm not going to get into, but he was from the Bahamas. He was a child of farmers. He was born by mistake in the U.S. while they were like on a tomato shipment. He just happened to be born in oh. the United States. He didn't learn to read until I think he was a teenager. He speaks this very odd or like um, affected way. The way he speaks is because he learned to get rid of his Bahamanian. Is that what you are from? If you're from the Bahamas? Bahamanian? Bahamian? Bohemian is different. That's actually from the Czech Republic. Oh. I, oh, no. Bohemian? Maybe. That's Either what way, I, I don't know. He worked to lose his Bahamas accent by 
mimicking TV news anchors. Mm. So that's how he has this very like kind of erudite, non-regional and very formal way of speaking. Yeah, right? actually, newscaster is a good way to describe the way that he speaks. <laughs> yeah, so he's like watching Walter Cronkite. And yeah. that's how he learns to speak in a in an American way. And it, he's the way he speaks is very um, like even toned. Yes, there's not a lot of emotion in it. Mm-hmm. Like a newscaster. And in this movie, because you've probably never seen anything with him, at least that you know of. I don't think so. So this one is a little unique in uh, his filmography. I talk about Jackie Robinson on this podcast a lot Mm -hmm. because it comes up a lot. But uh, Mm -hmm. if you don't know, he was the first black man in the major leagues of baseball. And he was chosen not because he was the best black player, although he was one of the best baseball players ever still, but because he was someone that they deemed as palatable to white audiences. He had been in the military. He spoke in this very articulate way. And that's there's this joke on the show The League, which is a very like silly show. They have this really interesting take on how they talk about baseball players in the media. Like if you say like, oh, he's real articulate. That's something that they'd always say for black players. Right. And if you say like, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a real firecracker. That's something you'd say for the Latin American players. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, he's a real gym rat. That's what they'd say about like white players because they're thought of as being less like athletic right. so if you're saying oh yeah he's a gym rat but you're all just saying the same thing but that's how you'd say it for each one of those races right which is really interesting so jackie robinson was was that kind of guy because he had to be perfect he had to be someone who could turn the other cheek and Sidney poitier a lot of people would say like he was not the best black actor of that time but he had this perfect elocution he dressed sharp and he was seen as like not threatening to to white hollywood so he was more palatable because of that. But because of that, then people start saying like, oh, that's all you can do. You are playing to white audiences and not black audiences. You're a, you're a sellout. You're inauthentic. And that's the double-edged sword of being a minority in, in so many things. Like you have to be all things to all people while a white actor can just be like, yeah, I'm an actor. I do this movie. I do this movie. Whatever. I'm an actor. Sidney Poitier doesn't have that benefit of doubt right he has to be representative of an entire people so he gets these roles where he always has to be the ideal man like guess who's coming to dinner that comes out the same year where all four lead actors are nominated for best actor or best supporting except for him oh and he is playing that very perfect man in that movie because that's all he could get cast as because he is kind of the working leading man that is black in Hollywood. Mm. It's pretty much just him. Wow. So he has to be perfect in every role and he's cast as these flawless characters. And I think that's part of why he's not nominated in these movies. I'm sure there's probably something to do with racism. Like the Oscars are just super racist. They're super sexist. That's just how they are. They're also trash. I don't care about them. They're dumb. But they are a good indication of how people were feeling at the time. And I think he doesn't get the respect as an actor because he doesn't do as much in this movie as Rod Steiger, who wins Best Actor. His uh, counterpart in this, the he's not a sheriff, he's the chief. Yeah, so he ends up winning Best Actor. Poitier is not nominated. And you can put on your uh, context-free glasses and be like, 
I see the argument for that. Poitier doesn't have to do as much as Steger does. But it's also that Poitier is pigeonholed into playing these perfect characters, and they don't have the ability to have a full range of emotion. Right. I do think that this is a movie where he's almost addressing some of that, and he gets the opportunity to break free from some of that. Mm -hmm. Not all the way, because he is still like immaculately dressed. Yeah. He is still very calm under uh, all the pressure and all of the terrible things that are done to him. But he gets those moments to break out of that, which he did not get the opportunity to do earlier in his career. Mm -hmm. Like the slap. He slaps back. Right. That is not something that he was allowed to do earlier. He has that one kind of break, a little bit of a tirade where he's just like, I'm going to get that fat cat and I'm going to bring him down. Mm -hmm. That's not something he was ever allowed to do before. So these breaks in character in this kind of persona that Poitier had created are are huge. It's hard to get that watching it now because we're just like, yeah, of course he'd slap him back. Why not? That man slapped him. But that was revolutionary, not just because a black man is slapping a, bl- a white man, but also in this history of Poitier's own career that he's finally getting a chance to break away. Right. This movie was so important and groundbreaking in a lot of ways that we can't always appreciate coming at it from 2024. Right. But then there's all those moments where you're like, wow, it's still the same. Yeah. And that's always that's always uh, hard. Do you want to hear a little bit about the production of this movie, too? I do. I feel like I'm just monologuing. No, but I, I feel love like it. This is context, kind of a monologuing movie. Context is important in this movie, more so than in most movies we watch. True. So this film is set in a fictional town of Sparta, Mississippi, but they filmed in Sparta, Illinois, because... Poitier would not go south of the Mason-Dixon line because earlier that year or the year before, he was hanging out with his buddy Harry Belafonte and they were just straight up attacked by the clan. By the clan? Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I don't go to the south anymore because when I go there, uh, people try to kill me. Right. And just to think of that as being a part of the production of this movie, because now we hear like, Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he ate raw meat in that movie, and he's a vegetarian. What a sacrifice for his craft. Do you see that guy? He lost all this weight. What an amazing actor. What dedication. Meanwhile, Poitier's doing movies where he sleeps with a gun under his pillow every night because he thinks there's a good chance he'll be killed because people try to tend to kill him when he goes there. Right. So they shoot in Illinois because that's one of the places where they're actually allowed to stay in the same hotel. Oh. With... Like the cast and crew, black and white. That oh wasn't goodness. the case everywhere. And the, they changed the name of the city in the movie to Sparta because they can't CG out the name Sparta off like the water tower and everything. Oh. So let's just say like, okay, let's just say it's Sparta, Mississippi now. Right. But then they do have to shoot a little bit further south. They won't go to Mississippi, but they do go to, I think it's Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And they shoot the cotton field and plantation stuff right. there because they needed cotton fields. Yeah. So they go to Tennessee, and that is where Poitier sleeps with a gun under his pillow every night. Because the last time he went south of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, the Klan accosted him and tried to kill him. Wow. That's wild that a like Hollywood actor, like someone who Someone is, who's already won a Best Actor award. Yeah, like that someone like a big name like that is having to deal with stuff like that. He could be like in the top five most recognizable black men 
in the United States at that time. Like mm-hmm. after Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, probably some other athletes are up there as well, but mm-hmm. not that many. Poate is, is one of the most famous black men in all of America, and he still has to deal with this because... I just think about like, we were talking about um, Interview with the Vampire and how they had them like in tunnels and like like hidden away from the public and how movies these days film and you don't even know who's in the movie or what the costumes look like or what's happening with them and that studios wouldn't do everything that they could to like protect their talent like that but they're part of the system right it's not like absolutely hey we're employing this black man because we believe in a race-free america i don't think that's the case it's still a large company in america in the 60s yeah Although United Artists, I hear good things of them back then. I don't really know, though. So I'm not going to speculate. (laughs) They almost didn't release this movie in the southern states because they thought there would be too much of an uproar. But they eventually did. Although it was banned in South Africa and not released there. Oh. Do you know why? Why? Yeah. Um, Because it's South Africa, you know, apartheid. Oh, yeah. That was going on. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) No, no, you're right. I forgot. Yeah. (laughs) So what do you want to talk about first? Do you want to start off with just talking about Mr. Tibbs and that performance and that character? Sure. Mr. Tibbs. Yeah, because I feel like calling him Virgil when he says specifically. They They call call me me Mr. Mr. Tibbs. Tibbs. I thought his performance was really good. I thought he did a really good job of kind of balancing the like racial parts of this movie as well as um like being a like being the smartest person in the room basically the entire movie (laughs) and i think i really liked his approach to how like multifaceted this character is Mm -hmm. like i think there's a lot of things happening under the surface for a character that probably has some of the fewest lines for like in the main characters and I feel like he did a really good job of creating this kind of stoic, mysterious character um, and keeping that up throughout the, the entire film. Yeah, really, it's right upon his introduction. He has so much power within his silence. Mm-hmm. And early on, you can see anger underneath it. Like that one scene where he's, the first time we see him, where he's being arrested and he's just silent. And we get this shot of his face and you could see seething anger, which is something we hadn't seen in his roles, at least in the roles of that I had seen of his. He's just always like happy and like doing his best to help everyone, just like a good guy and yeah. the, the perfect man all the time. And here we get to see that in that silence, I can get that, This is a man who is frustrated and has this simmering anger underneath. And this is also a man who has dealt with this before. This is not the first time this has happened. Yeah. He knows how to deal with the situation and he doesn't seem surprised. No, not at all. And I feel like when he explains that he was visiting his mom and he was just like changing trains and there was a four hour layover or whatever. And so he had to like wait and... You can tell that he's a rehearsed what he was going to say. I'm sure he was doing that in the drive over to the station and like. Or that that's just the way he has learned that he must present himself. Exactly. Which is kind of like an interesting mirror to Poitier himself. that He must present himself this way to work in Hollywood. Yeah. Similarly, Tibbs must present himself in this very 
even measured controlled way because he knows he's like two steps away from getting shot. Yes. And a lot of places they say in the movie, a lot of places wouldn't have stopped to talk to you. Yeah. You just would have been shot. Like that's the thing. So I really liked his kind of calm under pressure. uh, But you can see that like resentment and anger like boiling under the surface. Mm -hmm. And that was a really like good performance from him to be able to portray both of those. I also love the few times we get to see him kind of break his facade Mm -hmm. a little bit. I love the part where he buddies up with that one criminal in the jail cell. Yeah. And he's like, you know, I'm your friend. Come on. And you know that that's just him being a good cop. Yeah. That's him being a good detective. He knows that this guy has some information I want. I'm not going to be able to bully it out of him. This is what's going to work for this guy right now. He needs help. I am here and I can give him that help. Yeah. So and that's how he's able to get the information from him. I liked his uh, like, yeah, his buddy buddy speech there. There's one scene very early on that I think is is a great example of so much of this. When he is in the coroner's office and he is going to um, he starts examining the body. At this point, he already has some. I don't know if it's respect, but a little bit of trust from Rod Steger, who's, I forget the character's name now, uh, Gillespie. Uh, He has some begrudging respect maybe from Gillespie, at least that he knows what he's talking about. And he goes in there and he instantly sets himself up as, as an expert. And he has all this technical talk that he uses, I think, very deliberately because He's showing, like, I know what I'm talking about, and I know talking like this is going to show all of them that I know what I'm talking yeah. about. But then he always says, like, oh, well, the best case is, a, is for this, right? And the other coroner is like, oh, yes, yeah, of course. So he knows that, like, I'm not going to come here and show them all up and say, like, you don't know anything, you yeah. backwoods hicks. Like, uh, let me take care of this. He's going to show them in those, like, 20 seconds that, I know what I'm talking about, but also I am like here to be somewhat deferential to you as right. well, to show you some respect. I'm not here to to say that I am better, when he clearly is. But he, then he says things to the chief like, oh, well, the best way to ter- determine time of death is from heat loss of the brain, right? And then the coroner's like, yeah, right, right, right. And then he goes like, wouldn't you say so, chief? Knowing that the chief doesn't know. The chief know doesn't know. So he's kind of getting in little digs where he can, yeah. but he's not going too far with it. He's still within that kind of measured way yeah. that, that he that he lives his life. And that scene, I think, is not much on the surface, but we get such a good setup for the rest of the movie very quickly, both in the arrest, the first scene he has with Steger in the um in the chief's office. Mm-hmm. And when he's says, like, he shouts back the amount he makes in a week to him, that whole bit. Yeah. And the, uh, like, the train that's going to come. And then, it, of course, right on cue, you hear the horn. I loved all of that, that back and forth between the two of them. Because it's not setting the chief up as this crazy Southern racist. No. He is, of course, of that world. And yeah, I believe that it, that is a racist band, sure. But it's not some caricature of, like, these lazy, incompetent Southerners, which we would get a lot in a lot of movies yeah. as well. It's playing so much of this, like I wouldn't say middle of the road because that makes it seem like they're not making strong choices, but they're 
giving nuance to everything. Mm-hmm. Nobody is all, I was going to say nothing is black and white, but that's... It's <laughs> literally black and white. <laughs> but in that uh, coroner scene, I loved it because those other guys aren't overtly racist. But you get to see those things like, well, I'm not taking orders from this guy. <laughs> and like nobody's going to take his coat. And when the chief pulls off a bit of the, um, like the, the covering over the dead body... And then Tibbs comes and pulls off the whole thing and just hands it to the chief. Yeah. That is something that is small, but to audiences of the time, and even just us watching what has happened in the 10 minutes leading up to that, we know that's a big deal. Yeah, because it's coming in second to this expert. Yeah. And uh, Here, then, take this for Make yourself yeah, useful. Here, Grab this. Like, Grab this sheet. Take this away. <laughs> and then we get those shots of his hands the black hands handling a white body. Yeah. And that is something that also was was revolutionary for the time. That's not something that you would see no. in film. And that's something that none of those men had ever seen before either. And then that scene ends with him saying like, oh, where can I wash my hands? And I think maybe now the context of that is probably lost. Mm-hmm. But this is a time and place where black and white people didn't use the same bathroom. Right. They didn't wash their hands in the same place. And I'm willing to bet no black man had ever been in that room before. So the subtext there is, I am going to wash my hands where you wash your hands because I am equal because I'm an expert. Yes, yeah. And it's such an efficient scene to to set up so much of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really get a lot of context out of the way in that scene. Yeah. And you get reminded, and I, I don't, this probably wasn't like the point, in 1967 when this came out but as a modern audience as like a 2024 audience you get reminded of a lot of things that you might not have remembered like black and white people didn't touch Mm -hmm. and things were segregated and the idea that a black person would have more knowledge than a white person was just like unheard of like you would just never ever assume that and those were good things to remind the audience of in the first like 20 minutes of the film, I guess. There's a similar scene that adds to what you were talking about when he tells Mrs. Colbert that her wife is dead and he goes to kind of comfort her, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she pulls away. And you're not sure, is this a black and white thing? Is this a, this is a woman in grief. This yeah, is a woman, woman in shock. Just found out that her husband's dead. And you're not sure. And I think I love that you're not sure. Mm-hmm. I think as her character progresses, we learn that it is probably the grief. But right. I don't know. No. And this is a time where just having a black man and a white woman alone in a room. Yes. Was something that you couldn't do. Yeah. And in that scene, just to like jump on that. Um. You get to see maybe the first time she moves away from him is like racial and it's like under like she's not aware of what she's doing. It's just like ingrained. That's just how you act. And then you do kind of see her kind of clock it for a moment and then realize that like and then it just becomes grief. Yeah. That's kind of how I read it. Yeah. Was that there was this moment of her being like, oh, and then being like, oh, no, wait, this person is trying to help me. And, like, I just need to, like, take a minute for my husband who is now dead. Um, So, yeah, I I found there was, like, little nuanced moments like that that were really interesting to see. 
And we can still get that context. But at the time, we have to remember that this was less than a decade after the lynching of Emmett Till, who was uh, murdered, was lynched Mm -hmm. because he talked to a white woman. Right. This is that world. And to have Mr. Tibbs come in there and grab her arm and sit her down was, it doesn't seem big to us now, but it was. Mm -hmm. It was a, a big deal. I guess we could go into the other uh, big deal in the scene with the slap. Yes, absolutely. So the scene where he slaps Endicott was not in the novel. Oh, this was based on a novel. Right, yes. And according to Poitier, he, that the scene was almost not in the movie, but he said that, um, oh, I have a little quote here. I'll tell you what, I'll make this movie for you if you give me your absolute guarantee. When he slaps me, I slap him right back. And you guarantee that it will play in every version of this movie. Oh, because no he was edits. already yeah. thinking like, well, in the South, they'll cut that part out right. or something. So he asked for that guarantee and it was given to him. And we have that slap in wow. the movie. That was like such an iconic moment. And I, I know you had told me that that happens in the pre-episode. Like we talked about it. I was not ready for how great that scene would be. Hmm. It just seemed like like, like hundreds of years of slavery. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little retribution for that. (laughs) A little bit of reparation there. And um, to have him be slapped in his plantation home or garden or whatever with all of his workers and everything there in the area. I guess they weren't like present for it except for his manservant i guess it it, it was very satisfying i guess yeah to see that and then to see um the uh white guy i can't remember his name now endicott endicott um to see his reaction to that you saw that and then the chief is like yeah i did and doesn't know what to do either what are you gonna do about it there's no context for this i don't know i've never seen such a thing before so it was just it was very satisfying to see that and then to also see endicott's reaction when he's alone too because i'm sure he like had never experienced that and it seemed like true emotion like right when they leave yeah what did you see on him what kind of reaction did he give because I uh, actually don't remember what his face was like. I was looking at the servant. Oh, um, so he looks like he's about to cry. Kind of like realizing like, oh, the times are a change in. Oh, shit. So I was thinking about this actually yesterday. And I thought he's one of two things. I thought he's either crying because he's realizing that it's not the good old days of the South anymore, which we're not good at all. Um or he's crying because nobody's ever hit him before. Yeah. One, because he's like a rich plantation owner. And also that he's like his feelings are hurt because the chief of police didn't back him up. He backed um, Tibbs up. And so he's like a little bit of that like playground, like, but you're supposed to be my friend yeah. kind of moment. And so, like, either way, it's it's very well done. Um, but I was, like, really surprised to see that we got the emotion after the fact. Because I feel like a lot of movies don't show what happens in those, la- uh, like, last few moments of an interaction like that. Of, like, the emotions that surge. It's like when 
a kid falls down and they cry and then it's mostly because they were scared but you still have that like big burst of emotion well i think it might be the case here too yeah i think he's scared absolutely and so i really like this scene because of the way that they handled it all the way through the editing of this movie i really appreciate and i know a lot of it is dated now because it is much slower than yeah. a lot of current movies and things like uh, the zooms. Yeah. Zoom lenses being relatively new at this point <laughs> and they seemed a little too zoom happy at yeah. points. And because they are correcting for things that they just couldn't do otherwise. Mm -hmm. So they have to overcome a lot. And of course, this is also a, for the time, a pretty low budget movie. So a lot of it looks like 70s tv more than it does yeah. some other big i could see that like 60s and 70s films but i still really like the editing and i think it's choices like that or like when we get the smash cut to the thresher just before that and we get to see the people working in the fields the editing in this movie is able to do its own job at conveying the messages of of the movie I forget who the editor was now, but it is someone who does great work right. and who went on to be a very good director in their own right. And I feel bad for forgetting them now, but I'm not a film historian. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could talk about the other, some other technical aspects mm -hmm. as well. One thing that was also revolutionary about this movie was the cinematography. Specifically, this was arguably the first time ever that a cinematographer made special considerations for how to light black people. Yeah, because that's like a totally different thing. That had never like been a consideration. Yeah. And still in movies and TV today, you see people who are not good at it. They don't realize that yeah. it is different. And he is pioneering some techniques that are still used today. I personally... Never mind. I was going to say, like, here's what I like to do and talk <laughs> about filters and stuff. Nobody cares. But he cared. Right. That was something that people hadn't done. And I think so much of the movie is benefits from that, right? Um, the, his name was uh, Haskell Wexler, which is a great <laughs> name a good as name, well. Yeah. And went on to do cinematography for lots of, like, classic big giant movies. But in this one, the fact that you could see Poitiers' face, and he's a dark-skinned man, yes. that you could see it and it not just all be glare. Because in a lot of movies, when you see black people, they're either completely in shadow or you can see harsh glare on them. Right. Because they're just blasting. Light. They just have like no facial definition. <laughs> yeah. And because of Poitiers' performance, so much of it was in in silence so much and was in yeah, those and especially subtle facial yes. expressions like in the very beginning there was that scene i was talking about where he is being arrested and he has his hands up on the wall and i think the shot is from underneath his hands almost yeah and you get to see his face and it has a harsh glare outline on one side and then you get to still see his eyes on the other side and you get to see that's the part point where i was talking about that I saw this seething rage underneath, but still having it all be contained. And that, of course, is to Poitiers' credit because he's able to do that with his facial expressions. But that's also to Wexler's credit because had this been shot by someone else, I think all of that would have been lost. Because mm -hmm. you see other movies like that where that sort of thing is lost. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I did kind of notice, and I mean, obviously, I don't have your eye for movies and lighting and filters and photo stuff, but um, it's definitely something that I noticed that the the um, skin tones seemed very pronounced and like well lit. Mm-hmm. And that's about as technical as I get, um, because. But you could see him. You can that's see him, and the uh, it also goes the other way when they are trying to light sometimes darker skin tones. All of the lighter skin tones tend to be like just sheets. Like you, yeah. it's so bright, and I feel like that's also a very specific skill that I'm sure. Um, what's what's his name? Wexler. Wexler. Uh, did but it's really interesting to see this early in film that done so well. Yeah, yeah, and also like it took this long. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like right? it's like both, right? Yeah, that like wait, we should light different colored skinned people differently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It took a long time for that them to figure that out. Yeah, I feel like even in our our first day of our wedding photos when we got some sneak peeks, you gave the photographer some tips on that. Yeah, because. I you can't looked light so pale. <laughs> both of us the same way. <laughs> I didn't look like I had any blood in my body in a few yeah. of those photos. Um, but yeah, so it, and then even I looked like I had like porcelain skin. Yeah, like because I think so many people light. want to lighten yeah. skin because they think that is well, everyone wants to be lighter, right? Yeah. But no, I just no, want to look I, like what I look like. I just want to look like I look like with nice makeup on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's my that was my goal. But yeah, that was something that I hadn't really thought about until then so i think it's a very cool thing to see done well in 1957 67 67 sorry um and then there is the score which maybe doesn't seem like anything special to us now Uh but this was the first time at least the first time in any big budget or i guess this wasn't big budget in (laughs) popular cinema that the score had its base in american music Uh in the blues and in jazz a little bit it had always been your classic big orchestral scores before this right and we watch movies from like the mid 60s now and you're like why does this have like a a full symphony behind it it seems (laughs) odd odd. it's too much and to have a movie taking Uh place in small town mississippi if it had a full orchestral score it would seem very out of place Mm -hmm. so This was done by Quincy Jones, who is, uh, if you don't know, just a a musical genius who has, I don't know how many Emmys and Oscars and all of that, but so, so many. And just like made great music. I love a lot of Quincy Jones stuff from the (laughs) early 70s, especially. Quincy Jones. So like, I don't know a lot from the 60s and 70s, but Quincy Jones is one of the people that I definitely know. Yeah, he's big. (laughs) We're not going to get all into Quincy Jones. He's a name that I know. (laughs) But... They approached him and he decided to take his cues from American blues music because it's a movie that's taking place in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Why would I give it a big orchestral score? And that's why why he was chosen, of course, as well. And then we have the theme song, which I love a movie where they have a theme song with the title in the first five seconds of it and a great song by Ray Charles who is a, a Southerner himself. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if Quincy Jones is. So that was shocking. I heard stories about the first time this was screened and the music came on that the audience started laughing because they're like, what is this? Why is there like blues music in yeah. a movie? Because it had never been done. 
to not have your classical kind of European influenced score. Huh. Quincy Jones was born in Chicago. Not Southern at all. Do you have an, any other things you liked about this movie or noticed? One thing that I didn't like, can we talk about the gum chewing? Yeah, let's talk about like, it. like, oh my God. I, I hate any sort of like eating or chewing noise. That's just like, I just, it makes my skin crawl. Um, so that in the first like 20 minutes of the movie, I was having a hard time like focusing on what was happening because he was chewing so obnoxiously and then i was like if this was now it would be leading to some sort of joke or confrontation right like something would have to be said about this like guy chewing gum like that in a movie and then it just never came up did it bother you less as the movie went on um i was able to like ignore it a little bit more i wonder if it was done with less intensity as the movie went on maybe because the word you used was obnoxious yeah. and i think that is very intentional right? right it is supposed to be this is a man who has uh probably too much confidence yeah has never been knocked down a peg all the power and maybe we should talk about uh about his character now yeah, since absolutely. this is a good uh, segue into it i think the gum chewing I heard that he didn't want to do it. He's like, I don't chew gum. This is dumb. And then Jolly he started so to use it as a um, as a prop. Right. And the speed of his chewing was kind of uh, an insight into his character's emotions at the time. Right. And I don't remember it later on. And I'm not sure if that's because I became used to it mm -hmm. or if it's because as he started to... Um, not like maybe in respects too hard, but sure, respect Tibbs a little more. He began taking up less space in yeah. in the movie and in the world that he was in himself. Mm -hmm. huh. Maybe that's it. Interesting. Yeah, I did. Like, it was so overwhelming at the beginning that, yeah, I was having trouble like following the plot of the movie because yeah. I was like, shut up. Shut up. Oh my God. Someone needs to just like, I just wanted to do the like thing that we used to do before nap time when I was a preschool teacher and you do the like mouth swipe to make sure that Ugh. there's no like food left in there. You swipe that gum up. So that they don't like choke while they're sleeping. Um, I just wanted to go and do that to the police yeah, officer yeah. and get that piece of gum out of there. <laughs> On the DVD, I watched this little kind of 15 minute making of and they kept track. And I, I don't know the number off the top of my head now, but I think it was something like... He went through 257 packs of gum in the oh my God. building of this movie. The gum budget in this movie. <laughs> That's where all the money went. Out of control. <laughs> the $2 million budget, $1 million on gum. On gum. <laughs> Wild. So his character, Chief Gillespie, upon my first watch, I think I didn't appreciate the nuance of it nearly as much as I did this time. Because mm -hmm. I think I was watching for, for Poitier, right? right? Because to me, he's the big name. Of course, uh, Steger did win the Oscar for Best uh, Actor for this. Right. And this did win uh, Best Picture in 1967 as well. Oh. But his character, Gillespie, do you think he changes... And do you think he gets to the point where you or Tibbs like him? No. Do you think he changes at all? I think he changes to the point where he kind of acknowledges, and I think it's a little bit misguided. I think he acknowledges that Tibbs is maybe like an equal in police terms. Like 
not I'm not saying that he had like a full like racially led like epiphany of like oh everybody's equal Mm. i mean like this man knows his police work and i think that the chief thinks that he knows just as much as tibbs and that they are like not equals but like able to do the same job there's some sort of mutual respect yeah and i think that that's like a little misguided because like obviously tibbs is the smartest person and he's so much smarter than everybody else in this movie you can like see it it's painfully obvious to everybody but the people in this movie and i think that the police chief kind of respects him a little bit more by the end of the movie and i think that like i said it's like a little bit misguided because he's like they're not equals um, but it's really interesting to see his kind of a move towards protecting Tibbs towards the end of the movie mm-hmm. and a little bit more of like a let him do his work because he's getting the job done kind of attitude towards Tibbs. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that in talking about this movie and other movies that have followed suit of having similar themes, everyone's like, He met this great black guy and that cured his racism. No. (laughs) That's not the case. And I like that that's not the case. I think that is to the credit of the subtlety of the writing of this movie. Like, maybe he is just the least evil of the evil characters. But I think he is still meant to be seen as, as a bad guy. Yeah. That's how I took it. Don't forget, towards the end of this movie... He comes across like four guys who are trying to actively murder Tibbs. Yes. And what does he tell them? Does he arrest them or do anything like that? He says like, get on now, you hear? Go on home. That's it. That's it. Just go on home. So although I think this movie does show him begrudgingly give some respect to Tibbs, Mm -hmm. I don't believe that this character is fundamentally changed. And will extend that respect to black people. Right. I think he's actually like a pretty good cop. Mm-hmm. Gillespie. Again, low bar. Very low of bar. Of course, yeah. Because in a lot of other people in this movie would have just shot and locked up Tibbs right at the beginning. Right. One of those two. Yeah. Shot him or locked him up. He does make those assumptions, but he is a good enough cop that he is willing to listen and to learn. Which is surprising Mm -hmm. like none of these people i think are played as like racist caricatures Mm -hmm. they i believe all of them are racist every white person in this movie seems pretty racist Yeah. yeah i would say maybe him least of them i think that the best we can hope for for gillespie is if someone else is murdered and he sees a black person he's not going to bring them in without questioning he will still assume it was them But he will ask the questions now. Right. I think it is a tiny step. But for him, a very big step. Yeah. So I I like that the movie doesn't say like, hey, racism cured. Mm -hmm. All it is is take care of yourself, you hear? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. He has respect for this one man. And the movie, I don't know if the movie is saying is like, that's all we can hope for. But it is setting up a um, maybe a more realistic goal for a lot of people. Yeah. It's an interesting kind of conundrum. There were other movies about race relations in the South before this movie, but they would tend to center on the white character who Mm -hmm. is dealing with this changing world around them. 
And they often dealt with Southern kind of confusion about how things are different now and how that's um, the effect it's having on how they live their lives. And rarely did we ever see how the lives of the Black people yeah. were were changed or different. But here we get a bit of both. And I wonder if he won his Oscar because people are like, look, this is a shining beacon of how you can change. Yeah. I think Steger knew through this performance that that's not what he was doing. He was playing it small. Mm-hmm. And earlier on in the movie, I think he was more open because he was trying to be a good cop. And he is actually kind of an outsider in this world as well. Because we get to hear that he's pretty new to this job. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem like he's one of the gang. Like one of the the other cops are like laughing behind his back yeah. and stuff. So he is a bit of an outsider as well. Of course, not nearly as much as Tibbs or mm-hmm. um, Mrs. Colbert. Yeah. But next for being an outsider would probably be him. So that gives him, he doesn't exactly have one foot in each world, but he is at least willing to hear from another part of the yeah, world. Yeah, absolutely. Which isn't something that everyone else is willing to do. He's He's just a guy. Yeah. You know? Don't get me wrong, I think he is uh, very racist and will remain that way after this movie, but he is willing to listen and he is willing to be patient, but all of those are if it is in serving him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's not doing it out of any sort of compassion, but if it helps him do his job, then he is willing to get over racism. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I put it. I think that's a really good way to see it. But he's still kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that gum chewing. And that gum chewing. You'll never forgive him for that. And we get very few other black people in this movie. Yeah. I think it's just um, the cotton pickers. Yeah. The servant at Endicott's and the mechanic, right? And his family. Yeah. Yeah. So in each case that they show black people, they are all people who are kind of keeping this society running even though behind the scenes yeah absolutely right because endicott is the the richest guy in town who owns everything and is so powerful and it's because of his cotton plantation yeah the mechanic is literally keeping things running (laughs) (laughs) and then of course endicott's servant as well oh and then there's the um what's her name mama mama something who performs abortions when white people need something where do they go they're going to her yeah, absolutely. She's also keeping things running. Mama Kaliba. That actress usually plays like a very um, proper woman and does in, uh, oh shit, she plays Poache's mom in something. Oh. I can't remember what it is. Maybe it was the same year. Was it Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Anyway, something. Yes, yeah, she was in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So she played his mom in the same year. That's kind of fun. The film never comes out and says it, but maybe they're kind of saying that uh, America and ins- and its institutions were built on the backs of black people, but yeah. they would remain uncredited just like everyone in this. Yeah. Um, I feel like there should have been a few more black characters. Just, I and I understand that like back then that there wouldn't have been in a movie like this because they're already having like a leading actor. And I just think that like it would have been nice to see 
a few more just glimpses into what life as a, a black person in this town in Sparta would be like, just for context, I guess. I think that would have been nice. And I wonder if it was conscious in that line when they are going past the cotton fields and he goes, none of that for you, eh, Virgil? Yeah. And that's like a shot at both that you are an outsider from what Gillespie says at some point. It's like, yeah. these are your people. We're going to give jobs to colored people, to your people. And he's like, those aren't my people. I yeah. am not here. We are all not the same. I wonder if that is something that had been put in once Poitier had been cast. Because yeah. like I was saying, how he always had to be the ideal black man in all of his roles. And he was seen as an other from this like... From the, from the working class, right? Mm -hmm. And they are kind of addressing that in this movie, which had not happened in other movies I'd seen of his. Yeah. A lot of layers and nuance to this movie in the context that I cannot be privy to from, right. uh, you know, being born in the 80s. I just don't know about all of that. And I, I don't know nearly as much about Poitier's career, but this movie just seems like such a... Uh, uh, a milestone mm -hmm, in so many absolutely. ways, both in his career and in all those things that we talked about in the uh, portrayal of, of black people on screen. Mm -hmm. So that is why I uh, picked this for my <laughs> Black History Month movie. I think it's a very important movie and I think that people should watch it just to understand what it was like back then. And also a pretty solid, pretty fun police procedural. Yeah. Absolutely. Did it's, you know who did it early on? No. Some of that I also is wasn't not trying to guess. So I was saying that I'd watched it just last yeah. year, and when you said like, "Oh, who, who did it?" and we we're just kind of like joking around, yeah. I honestly didn't remember because that's not important about this movie. <laughs> no, and that's the thing. I it's like the last five minutes of the movie. Yeah. But eh, like by the end of the movie, I was so kind of enthralled by the story and the like race in this movie and the um kind of subtext that I'd kind of forgotten that someone had been murdered and that they were like the whole point was they were solving a murder. Yeah, the point of the movie is Gillespie and Tibbs's relationship. Yeah. That is what I remember. And just Tibbs in this kind of fish out of water story. That's yes. the important part of this movie. And I wonder if they had made the murder somehow related to those themes. Would uh -huh. that have made the movie stronger? Or is it better that their relationship can exist outside of that and they don't have external things um, outside of just the, the pre-existing world? If the murder was like, oh, it was done by a black person or like, oh, it was done by a white person who was upset about their racist tradition yeah, or something yeah. like that. I think that maybe would have been too much and allowing these mostly just these two men to work, work it all out maybe was better than having the movie also add in through the crime. I kind of right. like that the crime was just like, oh, yeah, it's just a thing for money that just kind of just happened. Yeah, and then it was because of this 16-year-old got pregnant and like has nothing to do with anything, really. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. And I almost feel like we could have done without learning who killed them. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. No. It wasn't an important part of the plot. And uh, yeah, I kind of actually had forgotten that that's how everything like worked out. It is funny that you can say, 
who committed the murder in this murder mystery is not an important part of the plot. Yeah. And it's not really it's not important to the the overall theme and importance of this movie. Yeah. And as somebody who loves a mystery, twisty turny thriller, I, I find myself very surprised that I don't care as much about who did it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really matter to me. Yeah. All right. Well, join us again next week where I think we are going to do our first rebroadcast. Yes. Yeah. So what we're going to do is um, we now have 251 episodes under our belt. And I I think, or 252, I guess. Anyway, numbers, who needs them? Uh, But we are going to start bringing back some of the movies um, that we have done previously from our back catalog. And um, we have a couple movies in the running this week. Indy, do you know what movie we're going to be re-releasing? Well, I think we should go all the way back uh-huh. to our first Black History Month movie and episode 40 Wow! from February 17th of 2020. Let's re-release our episode on Do the Right Thing, the 1989, I say, Spike Lee classic. <laughs> yeah, wow. That was only episode 40? Yeah. I feel like we did that so much more recently, but um, yeah, I'm excited to go back to that one. I haven't listened to the episode since then, mm-hmm. so let's uh, listen to that and watch Do the Right Thing. We're not going to do the whole pre-episode thing. We'll just release that next week. Excellent. Go watch Do the Right Thing. It's a great movie. Yeah. It's uh, available to watch so many different places. And looking at the show notes here, this is back when we would do Beer of the Week. Oh my goodness. We would have a beer every episode and I, I kind of stopped drinking. You did. I ruined it for us. Yeah. But the beer of the week that week was Brewster's Hawaiian Coconut Porter. Oh, classic. We talked about, in the notes, for some reason, I have David O. Russell yelling at Lily Tomlin on the sh- set of I Heart Huckabees. I don't know why that came up. Interesting. Um, Some scenes from Night of the Hunter. I know why that came up. And we talked about public enemy. We talked about how things are still painfully present in our everyday life. And this was February of 2020. So some shit was going down. It was, yes. So let's listen to that next week. Watch that movie. And um, we'll be back the week after with a new theme and a new uh, set of things of the fortnight. Y'all come back now, you hear? (laughs) Bye. goal for a lot of people yeah 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 yeah